Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 34 of the Lift Free and Diet Hard podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Coates. Your host has been very busy with probably, you know, 45 to 50, um, you know, hours of session work alone each week. We've had a big, I've had a big demand. So I've been a little sporadic again. I am doing my best to schedule stuff and then reach out to some of my friends and find time to chat. So uh, I grabbed uh, Dr. Alan Bacon today, who's kind enough to, you know, just borrow, let me borrow an hour of his time. And he's on Hawaii time. He's out on Maui, which is cool. You, your whole brand is Maui Athletics, and you're a, you know, you're a, a trainer and a nutrition, you know, professional. That, mm-hmm. that absolutely those two things. And you work with a pretty broad array of, you know, athletes. You know, certainly a lot of you know barbell sport type stuff and the general population. Mm-hmm. And as we were jamming about the earlier, you know, when I was digging around, I'm like, I never, never checked in on you know what the doctor stood for. So it's a doctorate in dental surgery, which is a past career that honestly off air, we were just talking about, you know, a shift in, in the priority of quality of life and, and happiness and, and the trade-offs for money and stuff. And I mean, I started my fitness career at 32 after fumbling around with a handful of different things and it's been the best thing I've ever done. So, you know, a lot of trainers don't necessarily start out as like 18 or 19 year olds who are passionate about fitness. Sure. We have a lot of younger trainers, but a lot of people find it later in life. So, you know, why don't you share a little bit about, you know, that quality of life trade-off that you alluded to off air? Yeah. I, you know, I think that, um, a lot of people feel that they need to be pushed into a a certain career path or another. Um, you know, there are those traditional careers that, that, that people always say, if you do this, you'll be happy and life will be good. You know, become a lawyer, become a doctor, become whatever it is. Um, and I think that um, people do have other passions um, and, and maybe it's not the right time for that passion. Um, and this is, this is something that uh, I've talked about with other coaches when they've asked me, you know, what, what should I look into when I'm, when I'm starting this out? Um, you know, what are things that I wouldn't think about uh, that, that I should know? And, and one thing that I tell them is exactly the same way that I kind of came up. It's don't be ashamed if you have to have multiple jobs when you first start out. Maybe coaching is your passion, but that's just not something that you can get into and and have it completely, you know, pay for your lifestyle or, or your life at the time. But it's not that way with everybody, anyways. You know, and I practiced, um, you know, medicine still for for years when I was uh, coaching on the side, and and didn't you know, I, I, I practiced for 10 years and I didn't get into coaching full-time until maybe the last year or two of that. Um, so I think that, that the trade-off for me was great. You know, in my opinion, a certain amount of money is, is what you need to be happy. You need to be able to cover your bills. You need to be able to, you know, do what you love to do. But then after that, where is your happiness better spent? Is it spent with more quality time? Is it spent with doing things you love? Is it spent with, you know, doing things that you're passionate about? Or is it more about the money? And I think that um, the more that you get into a career field, the, the more you realize that, that there, those intangible benefits really do have a lot of worth. Um, you know, and I think that maybe you know something about that too, because if you didn't even get into coaching until, you know, 32, Maybe there was something that you were doing beforehand and it just wasn't as fulfilling or it just didn't give you exactly what you needed. And you were like, you know, this is something that's been on the back of my mind. I'm going to dive in and take and take the shot. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I think that that there are those benefits that 
people undervalue um, until they don't have them? I think there's a couple of things that we we realize when if we're someone who's been there. One is you know varied life experience, and oftentimes to be a really effective trainer. And to do really well with the relationship side, the interpersonal side, which is an extraordinarily important part. Like no one can tell, you, you can be great at the technical stuff, but if you fumble with the interpersonal, if you fumble with the emotional quotient on top of the intellectual quotient, the IQ, then it is always going to be difficult for you to sustain relationships and stay busy unless your marketing is sensational. But then you're going to have a reputational problem and eventually that'll wear down too. So Having had a bit of varied life experience, I've worked in a number of different industries and, you know, a fair bit of it's been dealing with, you know, frontline customers. You know, I, I've owned a bar before I've worked in casino. I was a professional poker dealer for a while and in and, and poker room management. And there's a lot of customer interaction there. And I mean, I have two clients in my schedule regularly that I've known for 15 years because one started out as a coworker and one started out as a player and I've had them on social media and they knew my professionalism and my integrity then. And they wanted to work with me when their life situation was a very different thing. And, you know, so, so there's that, but I was also going to come back to this one too, having spent that time, you know, having gone and, you know, being a, a doctor of dental surgery, you have an evidence-based skill set. You have the ability to, put in the effort and work to learn a discipline. So those are very valuable skills that you can turn around and apply to learning the ins and outs of nutrition, the ins and outs of human movement. Yeah. You know, I, I think that another thing that coaches get into and, and alluding to your point where, where they're like, you know, how do I, how do I be the best coach that I can be? I think that what you do is you figure out what you're good at. You know, and having um, having a little bit of formal background, at least in um, in in you know physiology, biology, the sciences, I, I think that that's one of my strengths. So, you know, uh, I may not have there. There are some coaches that like Jordan Syatt that are incredibly good at, at the entertainment aspect of it. There are some coaches that are very good at the technical aspect of it. There are some coaches that know the the physical aspect of you know the body, and that's kind of where I sit. Um, and so I. I have used that to better myself as a coach. And I think that all of these guys, you, you want to build every one of these little pieces, but I think that people tend to go one way or another with what they're really good at. And I think that when, um, you know, coaches are thinking about, well, how can I reach my, my clientele? It's go with your strengths. You know, you're not going to be an Andrew Coates. You're not going to be a Jordan Syatt. You're not going to be, you know, a Mike Israel You're going to be you. So what are you good at and what can you strengthen to be able to get that message across? Speaking of guys who know their, their, you know, technical training, human physiology, and their fucking entertainment, they're Mike Israel Mike. Yeah, uh, it's a great guy. Astonishingly good at all of those things. And there's a probably a reason for why he's where he is. And, and Jordan Syatt is, is no different, you know, on top of the, the entertainment side of things, the guy is a technically brilliant professional in both uh, fitness and nutrition so it's it's awesome if you can excel at all realms but i absolutely agree with you if you find something that you're amazing at i can double down on that that shit pretty hard and you can i mean it's hard to learn you know human interaction if it's not something that comes naturally but fuck you can still work at it right you can always become better yeah well so you know and, and like you said double down double down in the beginning at least you know you being a coach is a lifelong learning, learning experience anyways, and you're going to get better at the other things, but, you know, lean on what you're good at and get better what you're not. Totally. So let's pivot this a little bit. 
one of the one of my favorite things to talk about because for, for all of the benefit everybody else listening gets to this, I'm really kind of selfish in that I get to hang out with someone for an hour and pick their brain on things. And I'm always fascinated with you know attitudes and philosophies that have led people to be successful. So what are the so I guess the embedded question here is question here is what are some of the fundamental attitudes you possess that have you think are key to your success with your business, with your career, and your longevity in staying in this business? I, I think the biggest thing is um, I kind of focus on the micro, which is not necessarily the, the way that a lot of people go. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of people who do really well at, at <clears throat> getting to identify with a large audience, at spreading a large message. Whereas I tend to do really well in, in those the smaller communications with, with different clients. And so what tends to be a strength for me, um, and you've probably seen this is, is Facebook groups. You know, I'm able to interact, not necessarily with a, an extremely large portion of people uh, intentionally, but unintentionally I do because I talk with, with one guy and I answer his question. I talk with another guy and I answer his question. Um, so if I was to give recommendations for people, it would be don't, don't ignore, you know, the individual for, you know, shooting for a large group of people because both can get you, get you benefits as a coach and both can help other people individually. Um, so I, I've really found that, that taking that kind of micro approach has done well for me because it fosters relationships, like you were saying, um, and it has been able to show other people what, I'm capable of as a coach. Facebook groups are sort of an interesting entity because they can be extremely powerful. Jonathan Goodman uses his OT, uh, you know, his uh, personal trainer development center offshoots, the online trainer Academy group there's and the fit pros unite very, very effectively, right? People want to mm -hmm. be in those. I know precision nutrition has theirs. And then you and I are members of at least a handful. I'm not super interactive in Facebook groups. So let's let's look at sort of the pros and cons and, and break that down a bit, because I think this is a very powerful weapon for coaches who are struggling to get busier. It's a place you can put some time. They could also- sure, absolutely. Like one of the places you and I are is uh, Stronglifts 5x5, five five, Jason Langdon's, uh, you know, one of the big- administrators of that, uh, you know, a buddy of mine back in Newfoundland. It's funny. He's a buddy of mine in Newfoundland. I've never met the guy. He's just is a social media buddy who's been, a, you know, a crazy supporter for a very long time. So I don't know. I don't even know if he listens to these fucking things, but <laughs> shout out to Jason. He's a good dude. So how would you go about interacting in a Facebook group to establish yourself as someone people want to interact with? Um, you know, in, in the way that people interact these days, it's you essentially, one, you need to be giving out good info, first of all, but <clears throat> even if you're interacting with somebody and you're trying to, to say that you've got hundred percent good info and you're in your, you're talking with somebody and, you know, fitness and nutrition is difficult. There's a lot of bad info out there. There are a lot of pseudo, you know, um, professionals that, that kind of push one message that's not necessarily accurate. When you're interacting in these groups, one of the things that I've found um, most beneficial is you at least need to hear out what they're saying 
explain that you understand what they're saying, explain why that might not be the, the most accurate way to think and explain the, uh, why you believe a certain way. And if you can back that up with some sort of, you know, peer reviewed research or anything like that, that is even better to, uh, to help your stance. But I think that the biggest thing is you cannot dismiss other people's opinions without at least addressing them and saying, okay, you know, I can hear what you're saying. And this is why that doesn't necessarily work out the way that you think it is. So, you know, that's that, that whole interaction set is important because completely dismissing people, especially when you're new in a group tends to put you on the outs. What about establishing authority? Because we have two types of groups that fundamentally, one is a group that is a fitness-based group where you go to interact and there are probably almost certainly other coaches who are in there with the same sort of intention or there may be a coach who is the owner, you know, if it's not necessarily your group, so that you have to navigate that. And the second type of group is a group that isn't related to fitness at all, where there's going to be rules about going in there and personal promotion. So thoughts on navigating, you know, both of those scenarios. It, it entirely depends on the group, um, you know, and if it's another coach's group, you are in that person's house. Um, you know, answering in most cases, especially when you have a good rapport with the coach, answering questions is not a problem. Um, you know, this is not a situation that's not appropriate to, to, uh, to, you know, be recommending any of your, any of your products, anything like that. Um, but good coaches like when other coaches help out, I mean, it kind of gives credibility to their own group that other coaches respect them enough to, to be part of that group. So, you know, I don't understand groups where the coaches feel that it's problematic to have other people in there because it, it does, it is a good sign. You know, it, it is a sign that they, that they appreciate what you do, that they respect you. Otherwise they wouldn't even be in there. Um, in gen pop groups, that's all about just establishing relationships. You know, this is going to be something that you build up over time. You don't want to go in there and um, make it seem like you're just trying to sell people. And I know that fitness and nutrition coaching, it's a lot of sales. Um, but I feel that the more that people get to see that you know what you're talking about over time, the more that you interact with people genuinely, the more that they'll often come out and, and approach you. Um, so I don't think that, that these groups are necessarily where you should be trolling to find clients. I think that it just tends to happen when you are genuinely helpful, um, genuinely respectful of the group, um, and, and, and really just trying to do the best that you can. And I think that a lot of coaches, um, you know, especially ones that, that both you and I kind of know, are in it because they really do enjoy imparting information. They do enjoy helping people. And I think that the reason that we hang out with those successful coaches and the reason that they are successful is because of that inherent, uh, you know, ability to just want to help people. And, and the it, fundamental principle that you just said is true on all social media. It's about you know, sharing information. Ultimately people will plug into you uh, as an authority figure. If they come to see how you interact with people. And then over time, like you said, they're going to start talking to you and asking you for things, right? Mm -hmm. And that can happen in a Facebook group or can happen on your Instagram or can happen on your Facebook or, you know, in, in other forms of social media. Um, so I think that's broader than just Facebook, but it's especially important in Facebook groups. Sure. And this whole pr principle of throwing a shit ton of jabs and, 
being very, very selective and throwing any hooks, the sort of Gary Vaynerchuk approach to things. And it, it becomes building authority over the long run. It's something you can't demand. You can't step in right away and say, hey, I'm, I'm all these things. People have to decide this shit for, shit for themselves. Your brand is not what you say it is. Your brand is what people perceive you to be in this space, right? 100%. And you can't rush that. You, that is something that you have to take time and trust the process and be of service and be giving. And over time, what tends to happen with people, certainly in our space, is people just like follow, follow, follow. And all of a sudden they reach out and go, hey, can I talk to you about training? Yeah, yeah. And this goes back to, this goes back to, uh, to, to what I was talking about um, a little bit earlier. You know, when I said, don't be ashamed that you've had multiple jobs. You know, in this beginning period, when you're first learning to coach, when you're first establishing a name, when you're first talking in all these groups and literally just hanging out, you might need to be doing something that you don't want to do on the side to make ends meet. You're not going to be having clients rushing to see you. That's okay. You know, build your skills, build your abilities, build your following and build your respect. You know, once, once that all starts to fall into place, it, it tends to snowball and it snowballs in different ways. You know, it, it, it could snowball in the fact that you have a group you know, you look at, at people like Patrick Humphrey and Patrick Humphrey has done an incredible job at his Facebook totally. group. And Patrick admittedly, his admittedly by himself has very little interest in other social media platforms. I mean, you talk to him and he's like, I, I don't really Instagram. And, and that's okay because he built up something that is now self-sufficient. Um, and, you know, he, he makes a very good living off of what he does. Um, you know, so I think that you go out and, and you just, you, you genuinely do the best you can into something you love. And this is the nice thing about fitness is that this is a profession that, that you join. If you love it, you don't join this profession to, you know, get rich quick. That's just, that's just not what fitness is. Um, and that's, that's good because the, the people that end up making it generally are people that are extremely interested in it and extremely interested in, uh, in, in, putting out quality material and, 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 you know, making those quality relationships. And it just ends up paying off in the end where, like I said, it snowballs. And I think there's a, a key embedded point that I'll take a little further, whatever form of media you engage in, especially if you enjoy interacting in Facebook groups, uh, you need to enjoy it, right? If you're going in there as a calculated you know, effort that you don't actually authentically enjoy, it's going to be unpleasant. It's going to be a tough thing to do. Yeah. And people are going to notice that over time. People will, right? They'll notice that you're, you, you have an agenda for me. I don't do well with scrolling through groups and Facebook discussions and this sort of stuff that I've learned that that's not my thing. I think for some people uh, like myself, especially if I can be very prone to scrolling or like, you know, having a difficult relationship with social media and that that's totally a thing. It, it's designed that way then I have to be very intentional in how I post. I interact with what's going on on my wall. Mm -hmm. Be very interactive with people in my messages. I get a lot of Instagram messages and I'm always very happy to respond to people. You know, I have a very full-time coaching schedule and I'm having trouble you know, scheduling podcasts, especially with people in fucked up time zones like, you know. Like the middle of the Pacific? The middle of the Pacific <laughs> or Australia or the UK or wherever, right? That's always fun. So... I have to be very intentional in how I go into social media and then retreat from it in order to get all the other things done. And for me, I don't enjoy 
getting into the Facebook groups much. You mentioned Patrick Humphrey's group. He's done an amazing job. I love what he's done there. Mm-hmm. But I realize that I can't be the person who's spending a lot of time immersed in that. So, and I think through this discussion, coaches are going to listen and go, wow, what, what Alan's saying is like, I like that. I really enjoy that. So you can get a lot of good out of that. And I actually think it is a great idea for most people. Jonathan Goodman talks about it in his books. Awesome strategy. You have to be patient with it, right? Mm-hmm. Or if you can recognize that maybe getting into, especially if you're someone who's prone to getting into arguments or seeing something you disagree with and get like, either it annoys you and you kind of have to walk away, or if you can't resist taking the bait and then start arguing with someone, that's not going to go over very well. You have to be very careful. And there are a handful of people who have come a long way. Like Lane Norton is a classic example. Lane has built a very, very big brand on being you know, like that bombastic sort of personality and sometimes argumentative. And, and some of that's theater, some of that's performance and, and some of it's a reflection that he's, he's sort of got that personality. He's also a very giving, awesome guy. Uh, you know, Alan Aragon definitely built a career on, you know, forum stuff and, 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 and like trolling people and, and providing good information all mixed in together. But that doesn't necessarily mean, it's like looking at Steve Jobs and going, well, because Steve Jobs was this notorious fucking difficult asshole running Apple and that was successful. Then you had this generation of like young Silicon startup guys who behaved the same way. And then they're, then they're failing and they realize the, the asshole bullshit had nothing to do with why Jobs was successful. It was because of all these other specific visionary attention to detail type things that Jobs had and a good company around him. Yeah. I mean, certainly some people can pull that off and others can't. Um, you know, when I, when I first started um, on the scene, I think that I think that I'm I think that I was a little bit more uh, confrontational than I am now. And, and you know, there's there are certain situations where I look at that and I was like, man, you know, I, I really regret I regret doing that. And so this goes back to one of the things that, that we had mentioned earlier was you need to at least re- uh, acknowledge another person's point of view and, and another person's argument. And that's something that it took me a while to learn, um, you know, and that's not something that I'm proud to say, but that's something that you want to be able to pass on to, to other people. So you say, don't make the mistakes that I made. You know, everybody deserves a second chance. Everybody can do better at what they do, but constantly work at getting better. And like you said, you know, some people can have that asshole veneer and can pull it off, but it's not because they're an asshole. It's because whatever else they're doing is trumping the fact that they're an asshole. And so, you know, it, it it's not necessarily the greatest way to go. And especially if you're stepping foot on a scene, it's not a good look. And the, there are people who being an asshole has killed their careers, killed their popular appeal. And one of the people I'm more than comfortable because he's been an asshole to me, that I'm comfortable saying it's, you know, there's been mentioned before on the podcast is a guy like Lyle McDonald. Lyle's just generally horrid behavior towards other people vastly outstrips, you know, the, the intelligence and the, and the valuable information. And by mentioning him, I'm giving him attention, but the reality is, is I'll never do anything to support any of his work. He'll never appear as a guest here, largely because of this, this just awful attitude that has been displayed across the entire industry toward most people. So don't, don't look up to him and his behavior and think that's somehow a badge of honor or, or the way you should behave. Well, I mean, there's certainly a, a, probably a significantly larger subset in this industry than there is in most of people that, that act like that. Right. Um, and I, you know, I've seen you in confrontations with people in the past, not being your fault. 
But the way that you dealt with it is the way that I would recommend that other people deal with this. You know, if somebody is not supportive of your cause, if somebody is not supportive of your work, if somebody is not a positive influence uh, for your personal growth in your own well-being, get rid of them. You know, there is absolutely no reason to keep somebody on your timeline, your newsfeed, your inbox. If they are a constant negative, you know, association, get rid of them. It doesn't matter. You know, there's, there's certainly enough positive people that you can, you can work with those. And you know what, that's, that's a good topic to hit on. And I suspect very strongly you're alluding to one particular individual who, um, you know, I was very supportive early on. And that individual has a strong history of being really hostile towards, in particular, you know, people that she sees as successful men in the industry. Now, some of them have done some stupid shit to warrant it. Others, she just randomly has turned on when they just don't buy into her ideological belief system. And anyone who knows, knows. It's fine. I'm not going to say any names. But when I turn around after a nasty, unwarranted attack on a Facebook post I had, and then I deleted the comment and blocked her. And then she came to message me on an alt account. I blocked that. She sent other openly admitted to having sent multiple people into further antagonize. The whole thing was very disingenuous. It was not in intent on, on a constructive discussion. It was, it was an attack. And then I blocked those people, deleted their accounts. And then stuff went on, screenshots of stuff went up on Instagram. So I blocked everybody on Instagram who was involved. And, you know, no one has the right, like you said, to, to steal from your emotional well-being. We don't have to tolerate this stuff. I was accused of silencing people because I deleted their comments. No, you were an asshole on my media. I have, you're under... You have no right to behave that way and expect that that sort of stuff's going to stay up there. And one of the best ways to get people like that to go away is to just block them. When people behave in that manner, especially on my Instagram, I mean, if they're thoughtful and they have a disagreeing opinion, quite genuinely, and, and if I know them and I respect them, then quite generally, I'll, I'll interact a bit, right? Well, but, we're not going to, you know, we're, as coaches, we're not going to always agree on things. And no. I mean, you know, this is one of those fields that one, the you know, I'm a research guy, but the, as, as far as what I, I kind of look at to, to build the basis of my, of my stuff, but you know, one, the research isn't that great in a lot of the fields. Um, you know, it just doesn't go as deep as we might want. So we use it to guide us. And then we use, uh, you know, in the trenches work to kind of refine that. Um, but you know, this is, this is one of those things that, um, if, if they're coming to you and they have a legitimate argument and they're respectful, they don't have to agree. And I've certainly got in arguments, not arguments. I mean, we certainly had, I've certainly had discussions with other guys and I'll say, you know, I, I don't agree with you. And this is why. And they'll say, well, I don't agree with you. And this is why. And then the next day we're, we're just having fun talking again, <laughs> but that's, that's kind of the fun of, of talking with other coaches and you're going to agree with good coaches. You're going to agree maybe 90% of the time on a lot of things. There's 10% I'm probably not going to agree with you with. And that's not necessarily that you're wrong or I'm wrong. Maybe there's something that, that you've seen in practice that's worked for you. And you're like, you know what? I, I like this better. And I'll be like, you know what? I like this better. And this has worked for me. That's fine. But as long as you're not turning into it, you know, something nasty, something, something unproductive, it's okay. There's no problem there. And once it gets into slander, which, you know, was actually what happened in this case, because a Facebook post went up completely slandering me. And the beauty of it all was everybody kind of knew this individual's reputation and very, very few people engaged in it. Certainly almost no one who actually knows me well. And it just quietly faded away. And I took the high road and I said, I literally publicly said, 
you can be friends with someone that I don't get along with. I'm okay with that. I will not police or give a shit if you want to be friends with people who I find really abhorrent in terms of their, their behavior. But for me, I'm going to tune them out and I'm going to just cut them from my, my emotional well-being because I don't need to deal with that shit. And so going, going back to the, the social media stuff or the, the Facebook stuff, Instagram, if you're on Instagram, first of all, I tell people, like, you really don't have to worry about trolls. Trolls are fairly few and far between. So if you're stressing about worrying about people disagreeing with you or trolling you as you're building up Instagram, worry about building up Instagram first. Deal with the trolls later. Yeah, I've never dealt with one on Instagram, honestly. They exist a little bit. Spencer Nadolsky does a wonderful job of showcasing. If you're in like a publicly nutrition space, you know, guys like Spencer, guys like Lane, whatever, who people who deal have different nutritional religions and ideologies. Well, you know, you know what this means. This just means I need a bigger following if I haven't dealt with that on Instagram yet. Well, (laughs) but it kind of serves my point. And you've got a solid following. You really do. But you know, I don't want coaches worrying that, okay. Okay, let's say some some asshole comes in and they're 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 negative. Guess what? You can block them straight up. Blocking them deletes their comments. They're gone. Get rid of them. You don't owe them a thing. Two, you can you can restrict people. They could literally yammer on all day and no one will see it. You can just restrict, and it's just like someone screaming in a little box and you can't hear them. Too bad. Go away. And it just like tune that crap out. You don't need to engage in this stuff. And I'm not saying, you know, if someone has a different point, a very salient point. And it's a thoughtful point that you turn around and just block that stuff. I'm just talking about the actual assholes who are out to ruin your day. Just block them. Get rid of them. Yeah. You know, you were asking me earlier about, uh, about I mean, you know, Facebook gr- groups are, are kind of my bread and butter at the moment. That is the biggest thing that you should do if you're somebody that's starting out a Facebook group. Your biggest concern in the beginning, and I know that you're going to think this, you're going to be like, man, I just need to get more followers because, or more people in the group. He said, I get more people in the group then more people will want to join. Honestly, it's not worth it. If you've got a person that is, that is constantly negative, constantly complaining, constantly, you know, just get rid of them. It's, that's not going to foster the group that you want. It's not going to foster, you know, a, a positive mindset for you. You're going to have to deal with it every day So get rid of it. I've got a little analogy that I, I've liked a lot and it comes from my, my time in the poker world. And I've long said this working on a gym floor. One thing that gym commercial gyms do terribly is police bad behavior, bully behavior, that one member that's loud, obnoxious, that complains, that makes the other members uncomfortable. If you establish yourself with a reputation as the person who actually will deal with, you have to earn the grace and, and in some ways the authority to to deal with the problem behavior that everybody else is frustrated about. Maybe it's a guy who's like screaming as he's doing every rep or, you know, he's dropping and crashing barbells or, you know, maybe it's like I've dealt with guys who would literally hover and bully people off of equipment and all kinds of stupid shit. And when you stand up those people and the members see it, then you earn a lot of respect in their eyes. And a lot of trainers are scared shitless of dealing with the bully. And sometimes a bully will complain to your managers but if you do so much else for everybody else in a very positive way, they may not say something, but that's the person who walks up to you later. And the analogy with the poker room is you're dealing cards to 10 people on the table. And if there's a table bully, there's often a table bully, some loud, obnoxious asshole who's always bending or pushing the rules. And most of the poker dealers I've ever worked with or seen are scared of the bully and they won't confront the bully. But the other nine players on the table, they kind of quietly go, well, this dealer sucks. And they, they don't respect you. 
And some of them just quietly get up and leave and they don't come back to the poker room. But when you confront and you toughen up and you actually put the bully in his place, sometimes the bully will respect you. Again, approach you attack, be professional. Mm-hmm. But sometimes the bully will be a, a childish asshole. Okay, fine. But you've earned the respect of the other nine quiet people on the table and they keep coming back and they like you and they're happy when you they come to your table. And it's the same thing with the gym members. And over time, you develop a ton of positive relationships. And those are often people who the polite little interactions make your day better in the gym. Or sometimes those people are referring you business or even asking for to train with you themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, and let's look at the positive of the situation. You know, as you foster those relationships, you get to, you get referrals, you get to meet more positive people and that just builds and builds and builds. So as you're building these, uh, these followings, you know, Instagram, uh, Twitter, whatever it may be, you might be in for a harder road in the beginning, but it, it does tend to get easier if you stick to your guns. Great. So one of the things you were interested in talking about you also wrote something recently, I think on your website, um, you know, about getting trainees to, we're totally pivoting here, uh, getting trainees <laughs> um, comfortable with discomfort. And this is, you know, a concept about getting people to really push themselves to where they're getting really great results. And any coach who's worked for a while knows that most beginners and often a lot of intermediates, they have no concept of what, well, real failure is. They have no concept of just how hard they can push themselves. Mm-hmm. And they have this mental governor that will shut them down that they quit with long before their physical ability kind of ends. So I want to give you kind of the floor on your why this is such an important concept to you and elaborate on it. So I was I was really excited when uh, when you had uh, you had you know reached out to me and, and we decided to talk about this. And, and I didn't realize you know, when I put this out there, I was like, he's going to think this is boring, you know, but this is a topic I want to cover and, and, I'm, and I'm passionate about. It. And then you came out with your article on Generation Iron. And I was like, all right, we were, we were on the same wavelength there. And I just didn't even know it was coming out there. Um, but yeah, you know, the beginner stages of training, you know, depending on who it is, they tend to last one, two, maybe three years. Um, you're getting down exercise form, neural adaptation, uh, building consistency with the gym. But the thing that, that a lot of people don't realize, everything works to an extent. I think coaches realize that. I don't think that a lot of trainees realize that. Um, what I think a lot of coaches and trainees don't realize is that um, in your intermediate stage, um, it's very easy to get caught there uh, for the rest of your life. And there's not anything necessarily wrong with that if you don't have specific goals. But if you want to reach anywhere near your full potential, you better start prioritizing intensity and recovery. Um, the reality is most people quit too early. Uh, mental toughness or the ability to accurately gauge exertion that accompanies pushing your limits is a learned ability. And that's a good thing because it can be learned. The issue then is finding the right balance between sufficiently pushing yourself to progress, but also keeping in mind your ability to recover week in and week out from your training. And so when I was thinking about um, talking about this and how to best give the information so it would make sense. I thought I would do it in three different steps. Um, first off, going over a little bit of where people are getting caught up, what's actually, you know, what, what the research tends to show with what uh, is causing the issues, finding a starting point. So we give you a little bit of a, uh, of a crash course in being able to identify maybe where you should be uh, identifying your, your, the weight you should be pushing, the load you should be pushing. 
And then finally looking at monitoring progress, because it's great if you can identify this, this, you know, intensity that you want to do. But if you don't know if that's actually working over time, if you're pushing too hard, if you're having problems, it does you no good. You know, you've got that snapshot in time, but it's not a static thing. So the main problem is gauging intensity is just not intuitive for most people. Um, new to intermediate trainees drastically sell themselves short on how much weight they can move or how hard they can go. As an example, stealing colleagues in 2017, they found when given a standardized weight and asked to predict the number of repetitions that a person can complete before reaching muscular failure, trainees routinely underestimate their ability by about three reps on average. But sometimes their predictions were off by as much as 11 reps. Right. When allowed to self-select the weight, they routinely choose significantly lighter loads than they're capable of. Barbosa Neto 2017 found when trainees are asked to choose a weight that they believe they can move for 10 reps on a bench press, they routinely complete about five extra reps due to underestimating the weight they should use. But in some cases, again, the self-selection error was off so much that they were completing 11 more reps in their, than their target. They were attempting to lift a load that allows more than double their intended reps. And what they found was, and this is where I think a lot of, of coaches might be, um, might be a little bit confused about because when I talk with this about coaches, they seem to think, no, you know, my athletes do pretty good. Well, when they test resistance trained athletes, only about 20% of them were at, were able to accurately estimate the true limit that they were able to do when given a, uh, a specific rep range. That's ridiculous. And it speaks to one specific thing is that the default things like reps in reserve or RPE that kind of stuff is almost useless with beginners and intermediates. It, becomes- it, can, it can, it can be, but actually if you look at, so, so then the question becomes, well, what do you use? Right. And, and with beginners, you can basically tell them just go out and do this because the idea there is I want you to build habits more than I'm worried about you lifting super heavy weight. I just want to get you into the gym consistently. Right. And so, you know, we, we also know from this, this research Zordos 2019, the more reps that you do, the more inaccurate people are at predicting these things. So if we know that RPE and RIR can be difficult for a, uh, for a beginner trainee to gauge, how do we find our starting point? You know, um, and you have two issues at play and regardless of whether your goal is to gain size or gain strength, we want to sufficiently push ourselves near, near failure, but we don't want to push ourselves so much that we hamper our ability to recover. So you covered this in your Generation Iron article uh, on training to failure, where you brought up the fact that consistently pushing yourself to the limit of your capabilities likely does not pay off in the end due to how it affects your recovery. And that's the same thing that, you know, I've found that, that most good coaches have found. You can't just go, you know, balls out 100% of the time, you're going to burn out. Um, so looking at, at all the information that we have, a good rule of thumb is to make the base of our training shoot for about one to three reps short of failure. That tends to be the sweet spot of adaptation benefits without taking those hits on recovery. Um, and there are multiple ways that we can learn how to do this, but they're slightly different depending on what type of program you're following. And what I mean by that is the three main ways that you tend to program intensity are percentage of one rep max, RPE, rating perceived exertion, or RIR reps in reserve. With, RE, with RIR and RPE being very, very interrelated. I mean, they're, they're fairly similar. It's just, it's kind of a different look at the same thing. So for percentage work, uh, I mean, there's not much you can do. You simply follow whatever your 
program is you're running, but since percentages don't take into account how you're feeling that day or individual variation, it may be the least adaptable training protocol on paper. Um, it doesn't allow the athlete to auto-regulate quite as well as RPE or RIR over a variety of rep ranges without further guidelines. And that's the important thing. You know, I, I'm sure that I'm going to get an angry message from Patrick Humphreys later where he's like, but I love, I love percentage work, you know, and, and he does percentage. I think he does a bit of RPE as well. Um, and I don't want the powerlifting coaches to come after me because I do think that percentage work works extremely well for what it works with. Um, it's extremely accurate from about one to three reps or 90% of one RM and above. It, it tends to work fairly, fairly well for everybody. The problem is if you look at things like Richens 2014 at 70% 1RM, resistance trained participants in the study vary between 19 and 40 reps. That is absolutely ridiculous if, as far as a range goes. So it's particularly suited for strength progression, <clears throat> but athletes would understand that following those exact formulas, it's probably not a great idea. I mean, you could probably get away with five reps. And, and I think that, you know, with, with our programming, I work with a lot of Olympic weightlifters <clears throat> and a lot of powerlifters. And I will, I will use uh, percentage work for about one to five reps. I don't really use it beyond that because it's, it, it's just so mercurial about what I mean when I'm like, go, you know, at this, you know, this, this percentage, it just doesn't work out that well. So because of that, I gravitate for most of my programming to RPE, RIR and RIR in particular with my athletes. But I understand if individual coaches like one method over another, again, this is, this is, you know, what's going to work in, in your hands. And so, and so, well, the majority of people tend not to lift heavy enough. I mean, that's the one thing that, that most of us can say. So you should generally just have them pick a heavier weight than they think for a given number of reps. I mean, this is one way that you can go about doing it. Um, it'll allow them to predict their, their true ability more accurately. So if you're programming, you know, something that uh, has X number of reps, tell them to add five pounds. If it's, if it's a compound lift, I mean, shit, you can tell them to add upwards of 20 pounds, depending on what the lift is. Um, you can always dial it back if you find you aren't able to hit the target of number of reps in practice or that you feel the, is, that it is significantly beyond the RPE or RIR indicated. If you do use an RIR or RP style routine, uh, this is what I like to do with my, with my athletes. Um, I have them, I give them their program and if, and if it's percentage is percentage, but that'll usually be like, you know, the one to three rep work. Um, in the first two weeks, first week or two in a training block, um, I have them take targeted sets to failure as a way to verify they've chosen the proper weight to progress for the rest of that cycle. I mean, if you, if you have a two RIR, which I, which I routinely program in, uh, you select the weight that you think that you can do for the two RIR and you, you take it out until you you've completely failed. And, you know, at, at that weight, you're obviously not drop setting. And I know that you were, you had that on the back of your mind, the absolute failure versus, right. you know, technical failure of, of the, the specific lift that you're doing. And we can talk about that. That's a bit um, pedantic to like, you know, when people talk about that and I made that point in the article, mm -hmm. but it's like, okay, like, yeah. Okay. That's just like the semantic bullshit that people tend to argue about, but on technical points, sure. But, but you're right. What you really mean is, is, you know, failure to the, you know, of the weight that you're using, Yes. On, that, on that set. Yeah. In, in this talk, that's what I mean when I'm saying failure. So let's assume you're doing two RIR, you ask the, uh, you ask the athlete, you know, pick the, uh, pick the weight that you think you can do for 10 reps, have them go all out and, uh, and see what they do. 
Um, if you achieve more than two reps beyond your target, then it's time to add some weight. You did too many. If you hit two reps and then you fail on your third, you've hit it perfectly. It's an easy fail-safe way to test RIR. Now, the reason that I say first week or two is because you got a lot of exercises, a lot of times, depending on how you program, you know, some people will program more exercises, more volume than others. I, I tend not to love people taking every exercise in one day to failure at the same time, because it's not going to give you a good, in, a, a true indication, right? So that first week you do maybe the first two to failure and then in certain sets, and then you, the, the next week you take the last two of that day to failure. And then after that second week at that third week, you now have a full set of, okay, I tested these and this is where I should progress from. Right. And not to mention, if you take everything to failure, and this is one of the major premises of that article, you're going to accumulate fatigue faster mm -hmm. than accumulate training effect, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this is, this is a way that you can look at that. And, and as a coach, you just need to give them a little bit of guidance on, on exactly why you're doing this and how you want them to do it. Um, another method that I've seen is Brad Loomis. Uh, he uses a combination of RPE and uh, he actually has people record their, um, their lift and monitor bar speed. And he does this, this combo. And you can always look up Brad Loomis's stuff. If you want the specifics, it would just take too long to explain it. But as an example, if you have like an eight RPE, his explanation is, I want you to feel like the movement is slowing down, but visually, when you look at the recording, it's not slowing down. It just feels like that. That's the RPE of eight. So he gives a little bit of a, of an overview. So you can look at it that way. Lastly, if you're still concerned and you're like, I just, I just can't figure this out. You're by yourself. Um, you know, periodically look at a particular lift, get a spotter. People in gyms are more than happy to spot you, especially the big guys. The funniest thing is in a gym, the biggest guy is the nicest guy generally in a gym. And you go up to that guy and you say, Hey man, not when he's in a working set in between when he's resting, say, Hey man, if it's power lifter, he's got 20 minutes of rest. So you, you've got a lot of time to get him, <laughs> but be like, Hey man, I just need you to come over, give me a spot, go to absolute failure with the weight that you think that you should be doing for that and you can see where you are. If you're at two RIR or an RPE of eight, which is, which is roughly equivalent, you can look those up too. If you go significantly more than, you know, two or three reps, you need to up the weight. Um, the important concept through all that is that you're likely, at least initially, a lousy gauge of how capable you are. And coaches understand that even if you are one of the 20% that can really gauge your, your ability, and a lot of the coaches that we talk to are because they're really good at what they do, your athletes probably aren't. You know, and there's a better chance than not that they're not, um, you know, so dial your training in with a test week at the beginning of the training cycle. If you find that's a, that's a, a you know, a beneficial thing for you, test your, your absolute limits safely and go from there by, by establishing these starting points, you've just given yourself the greatest chance of progressing really well. So I don't know if you do any, uh, any other kind of, of progress checks or, uh, or, or starting point checks for yours, but those are at least a, a few that can, that can give you some starting grounds. I think this is a wonderful, you know, technical breakdown of it, right? Cause it's, I think for a very, very long time, because most of my work is in person and I have a few people online at any given time, maybe under 10 for sure, mm -hmm. where it tends to be general population for me. And therefore you're working with people. My eyes are on the person on the gym floor and I can mm -hmm. recognize you know, and there's different kinds of clients who have different risk reward profiles too. So that's also absolutely. Yep. There's so much nuance to the general population. And I've got people, I've got women, my client, Bailey, I don't think she listens to stuff. She's a trainer. Oh, my sweet mother of God. You know, since she's been training with me every, every session, she's done some sort of 
ridiculous PR. She pulled a 291 pound trap bar deadlift the other day. And she's not very big. She's quite little, you know, a lot of muscle mm-hmm. on the frame, but she still looks like a normal person, not like a bodybuilder. And you get those people who you give them something and they just will continue to go and go until like the bar literally won't move anymore. Like there's just mm-hmm. no embedded fear of it, right? They just don't push themselves on their own. And we've all had those clients who, you know, they, they like find these creative, cute ways of whining if the weight is a little bit heavy. And I realize that my client Bailey lifts heavier than several of the guys I've trained for years because they just don't have that profile where they want to like really load up the bar and like lift heavier shit all the time. And sometimes you just realize, all right, well, that's not the client you do this. You try to find creative ways to nudge it a bit to get them great results. But that's not the guy who's going to be doing a three RM on a squat, right? It's just not, not him. Yeah. And, and, you know, as a coach, you're going to have to feel this out for each person, you know, and there are certainly people that I've put on percentage work that uh, I optimally, I would have liked to have not put them on percentage work, but I'll, I'll give them a percentage for like a, a 10 rep. And I'll be like, well, if I don't tell them this percentage, they won't lift this much weight, you know? And sometimes, sometimes you'll pick that because that is what is right for that person to, to get them where they need to go or to teach them what they need to know. Um, and, and another point to go back. So the, uh, so the, the pure powerlifting coaches don't, don't kill me later. Uh, you know, like I said, a, a good way to use it. And I, I think it's, it's very good for one to three reps, certainly one to five reps, probably you've got that acceptable margin of error where, where most people can probably can probably get in the right range, but then consider doing anything above, you know, whatever you find for me, it would be five reps, whatever you find above that do the RP and RIR for that. You know, and then, and then maybe you get that, that comfort of, of something that you are familiar with that has worked really well for you. And then maybe you just added, um, something to, uh, to give your, your clients even better gains, you know? So last point, almost out of time. So I'll I'll let you. Okay. Last point, monitoring progress. I at least want to want to go over this a little bit because I think this is really important to, uh, for everybody to be, to be following along. So we got some tricks uh, to create a good starting point. Um, and now we have to monitor both the effectiveness of training and the fatigue that it creates, which directly affects our recovery from session to session. Each coach is going to tell you different things about this, but this is what I use. You can tailor it however you like. You can take whatever you like. You can throw away whatever you don't like. I tell people to keep four things in mind. One, perceived exertion. Two, soreness or fatigue. Three, performance. And four, pumps. So for perceived exertion... I like seeing the session feeling moderately challenging at the beginning of a training block and difficulty ramping up towards the end of the cycle as progressive overload comes into play. Um, also, fatigue can sometimes accumulate over that time period. Um, for soreness and fatigue, you want to look for signs of modest post-exercise soreness or fatigue in the muscles that tend to get sore. Since not all muscles tend to get sore uh, for each person, this is not a definitive sign of progress, but it is one that can be monitored. So keep in mind to also watch out for cases of extreme soreness and fatigue, which, uh, you know, between workouts, because that's a sign that volume or intensity should be adjusted to allow adequate uh, recovery. Three performance. Uh, it should at least be maintained or slowly progressed over a training cycle and certainly signs of progress over multiple cycles if you're advanced. Uh, and lastly, signs of residual pump after training a target muscle. And this is similar to gauging soreness in that individuals may not have this as significantly in certain muscles. Some muscles will be more prone than others, but as long as you realize this, you can still monitor those ones that, that you're aware of. Now, just like how <clears throat> scale weight doesn't tell the whole story in a weight loss phase, each of these on their own does not tell the whole story of progress, but combined, they can paint a decently clear picture. And so 
that covers how I would monitor effectiveness, but I do have one last point. Um, I liked something else that you said, your steak analogy that you used in your Generation Iron article, um, where you said training to failure is like the perfect seasoning on a steak, not the steak itself. And for me, I felt that um, if seasonings are advanced training techniques, such as training to failure, drop sets, rest, pause, or whatever it is, then the base of your training can be thought of as the quality of the cook. Balancing intensity with recovery is your medium rare, just like the chef recommends. And in this case, that standardly falls within a few reps short of failure. Train too intensely for too long and you just burnt your steak. Both too little and too much intensity can prevent an athlete from achieving their full potential. So use a few of those methods to find your starting point and then monitor the progress and fatigue moving forward. However, you find gives you the best information for that. Well, I wish I had more time because I'd want to let you go for another hour. I'll <laughs> uh, call in uh, four minutes with one of my guys. So, Alan, this is phenomenal. I could tell, like, I don't know if a client or sorry, uh, you know, someone coming on a guest has ever prepared themselves as thoroughly. I mean, you're literally citing off research on this. And I think that's probably <laughs> the first time, but it's damn near close. So I'm thoroughly impressed. You're an eloquent speaker. I really do hope that people go and find you on your social media. Uh, you know, your, your Instagram's fantastic because it's mostly memes, oddly enough, but it's at Maui Athletics, right? If I'm correct. <clears throat> Absolutely. Yep. M-A-U-I. Yep. And uh, so everybody, please, guys, go check out what Alan is doing. He's someone who, you know, because he immerses himself in the Facebook groups and is immersed in a busy business, hasn't necessarily gone down the road of trying to blow up his Instagram. You still have a sizable following. So uh, go check that out. And honestly, you know, I, you sound like you'd be pretty engaging if a coach had questions for you. So I'd say go hit you up. And absolutely. Yeah. We really appreciate the fact that you you came on to chat. And uh, just for your knowledge, I'll be literally releasing this for the morning. So it's coming out right away. I'll get you some stuff. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Quick turnaround. I, I'm a little behind on these. Like I missed <laughs> one last week and I'm guilty of that. So again, to the listeners, I appreciate your your loyalty in doing this. And uh, it is my intention to be very, very consistent with them. But unfortunately, scheduling has just been a bitch. So sorry about that. Hey, I, I really appreciate the, uh, the invite. This was a blast. Uh, you know, anytime you want to have me on, I've, I've always got more things to say. You, you have an open invitation back and I might just pull you out if I, uh, you know, if I'm, I'll plan something anyway. But uh, if I really do need to like, hey, shit, I need something for this week. I might just grab you <laughs> to move you up yeah, a notch. So uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. I really appreciate it. You know, it's the same old spiel. You know, if you found this through Alan's media and this is the first time you're listening, just cycle through some of the other guests that I've had. I just had Christian Thibodeau on. He's hysterical. And, and go back through the library. And there's 34 episodes of this current format and 150 episodes of me and my friend Dean Guido under the old moniker. We've talked to everybody from John Berardi to, you know, Mike Isertel several, several times and everybody in between. And uh, I appreciate all you guys doing that. Uh, you know, give me a five-star review if you'll actually remember to do it. People think to do it, but they never do. It'll literally take you a minute. I appreciate it. And Alan, I'll be chatting with you soon. Thank you so much. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate it.